You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for tuning in. I'll tell you what, i got a lot of stuff to talk about today, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to talk about one particular theory that I have and ramble about it for probably the better part of an hour. But one quick note about the upcoming Politics of Religion Conference in Fort Wayne, Indiana, April 1st and 2nd. It's going to be really great. Uh, I've seen Mike Tater's presentation. It is really, really well researched. And um, I know that uh, Dr. Future also... Uh, according to Mike, it's uh, pretty phenomenal, too, what he's put together. And, of course, I know that Russ Dizdar and Andrew Hoffman both do incredibly good research, too, so we'll see uh, how that goes. If it's anything like the last day's conference, you'll really leave with uh, some changed perspectives on some things. And I I certainly hope to do the same thing with my two presentations. One of them is um, uh, the one that I particularly think is going to be good, the, the one about prophecy particularly uh, focusing on Matthew 24 and the rapture, but uh, not quite like the verse-by-verse study of Matthew 24 I did. It's going to be quite a different format altogether. Uh, And I I certainly learned a lot from doing the verse-by-verse study, and I'm glad that I've had these last few months to put this all together. And right now putting the finishing touches on the, uh, the presentation about debunking and how to do it and why to do it and when to do it from a biblical perspective. So I think it's going to be a really great conference. Again, April 1st and 2nd, you can get tickets at the politicsofreligion.com website. And Chris Pinto is no longer going to be there. He had a scheduling conflict, and so he is not able to do it. Um, But it's still going to be a really rocking lineup. And Mike and I were just talking about how excited we are personally for the information. So I hope you get a chance to... Come out and see what's going on if you are near or can make it to Fort Wayne, Indiana, April 1st and 2nd. Okay, so what I'm going to do here is talk about a theory that I just heard last Saturday, Friday. And I've been taking this this class with Charles Cooper through the book of Revelation. And Charles Cooper is a guy that... um, I really respect as far as uh, as far as his his work and stuff. I actually have that interview in the notes from from the last show. And when I first heard his his view about who the woman that rides the beast in Revelation seventeen and eighteen was, I dismissed it. I thought, well, that doesn't really that doesn't really fit all the characteristics, and and uh, I'm just going to hear him out. You know, but but I think he's wrong on this one because there's been some things before. I was like, nah, I don't know if I'll go there with you, but uh, very very few things really. But um, so I was gonna I was gonna do that, and then he kept going. I was like, yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, that's true. And then I started looking into it for myself and doing some word studies and poking around here and there, and it's been pretty unbelievable. I mean. The connections all throughout the Bible are really, really, uh, I would say that uh, that if this isn't it, then there are a uh, there are far too many references uh, to throw you off here because it is really, really solidly based on 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 scripture, in my opinion. But it is if it is true, it is 
it, it, it needs to be known because nobody knows it. And I don't know what the implications are. Um, I figure God has this stuff down there for a reason. I mean, you know, he wouldn't, if he didn't want us to know some of this stuff, he wouldn't put it in there, you know? So, uh, I, I'm sure there's a reason for it. And I'm actually thinking about, uh, after doing some more research on this and, and especially some of the stuff that I dug up on my own, I, I think that I might do a, do a movie after this and, and do it on this subject. So, so just because if it is true, it's so needed. Uh, because there's so much wrong theology about who the woman that rides the beast. Dave Hunt, you may know, put the book out called The Woman That Rides the Beast, saying that it's essentially the Catholic Church. Um, the idea is, well, we're, we're going to look at some of those ideas in a little bit. My, well, let, let me just jump into it, and we'll, we'll kind of go from there, and I'll tell you what it is, or what I think it is. Revelation 17, The Scarlet Woman and the Scarlet Beast. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, uh, with whom the kings of the earth commit fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on the, on the scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, and having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones, and pearls having in her hand a golden uh, cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication on her forehead was the name written mystery babylon the great the mother of all harlots and the abominations of the earth verse six i saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of jesus and when i saw her i marveled with great amazement but the angel said to me why did you marvel i will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her which has seven heads and ten horns the beast you saw was and is not and will descend or ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven ki kings. Five have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beasts. These are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For the God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give the kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great, has fallen, has fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of fornication. 
The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through her abundance of her luxury, and heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she has rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure of in, in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will reap and lament for her when they when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise any more. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most, most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and incense, fragrant oil, and frank frankincense, wine, and oil, fine flour, and wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and bodies, and souls of men. The fruit that you so longed for has gone from you, and all the things which, which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more. The merchants of these saints who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, the great city was clothed in fine lemon and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is, uh, what is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, the great city in which all the ships on the sea became rich by her, her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and your holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you upon her. Then a mighty angel took upon a stone like a sea, a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down, and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, trumpeters shall not be heard in your city any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. The sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of the lamp shall not shine in you any more, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great... Okay, so it goes on. But we have read it there. Now let's sort of get into it. And I'm going to tell you what I think it is real quick, and you're going to be like, nope, that doesn't work. But just let me let me walk you through it here. The great city is future Jerusalem, not not the, not the new Jerusalem, but Jerusalem in the days of the Antichrist. Um, this it's obviously a great city. People sort of people. That's why people think this is Rome. Uh, other people say it's actually Babylon. I don't think it's Babylon for a number of reasons. Um, you can just take a, a physical reason that. You know, that's something on the sea. The ships see the smoke of the tor torment. Babylon is hundreds of miles from the coast. Um, not a ship port for, for merchants, as, as, as discussed here. So that leaves Rome and, uh, and, and Jerusalem. But that, that's in no way what we're going to be talking about here. Let's just go start off from the beginning. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Okay, those two points are really, really important. This idea that... that in the future, the government of the Antichrist will be run from Jerusalem. Now, that's not so hard to believe, is it? I mean, um, we look at Second Thessalonians 2, 
and Matthew 24, both of which describe the abomination of desolation and say, um, you know, that, uh, let's see, second, not to be soon shaken or troubled either by spirit or the word as if the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. Now, that doesn't necessarily say that he's ruling from uh, Jerusalem. It does say that he at least goes there to sit in the temple and declare himself to be God. But we also have things like, um, let's see here, let's go to the book of Daniel. And we're going to find this phrase that says, he shall, he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Now this idea of the, the tents of his palace, as the New King James has it here, um, let's take a look at what this is in a few other versions to sort of get an idea of, of what we're looking at here. Kind of using the E sword here, so forgive me as I... This is going to be kind of a rambling show. You're just going to have to deal with me. He shall... The ASV says shall plant the tents of his palace there. ESV said he shall pitch his palantial tents. Um... Geneva Bible says that he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace. Uh, the ISV, which has not come out yet, but uh, I respect that version. It says, um, when he pitches his royal pavilions between the seas. So we've got this idea of, of his palace here in the, in the RV. It says, and he shall plant the tents of his palace. So we get the tabernacles of his palace, as the King James says. So we get at least some idea there, and I actually would suggest as sort of a side note that this is the last verse in, in Daniel chapter 11, and the next verse is talking about the abomination of desolation. At that time, Michael shall stand up over the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there should be a time of trouble such as never was since the beginning of a nation even to that time. I would say that this come to, coming to an end of him is actually, um, as it describes uh, his one of his heads being mortally wounded, that he actually is killed before the abomination of desolation. There's some people that speculate that when he sits in, in the temple as God, he will be he will be killed by some zealous Jewish person, and then he'll raise from the dead. But this would seem to suggest that he comes to his end um, before he sits in the temple, which I think makes sense because he's declaring himself to be God would, would seem to fit him already demonstrating or supposedly demonstrating whether or not he actually raised from the dead is a little questionable that he uh, has power over death. But getting a little off track here, uh, there are many other instances of this idea um, that, uh, uh, you know, here in the two witnesses are an interesting thing. These th these guys are killed uh, by, the, by the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. And it says that it was in... Israel, it says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, now that's the one that we just made reference to over there in our verse there in Revelation 17, he will come out of the, out of the what, we'll get there when we get there, will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Now, that would be hard a hard city to, to identify if it were not for the next line, which says, where also our Lord was crucified. 
Okay, well, that makes it a little less ambiguous. I mean, spiritually, Sodom and Egypt is not something you'd be able to dig out uh, very easily if it wasn't for that, that qualifier. So, spiritually, Sodom and Egypt is Jerusalem. Now, this next part. So what we can we can get the idea that sits on many waters. If in fact the Antichrist is ruling out of Jerusalem, uh, that it is ruling, and of course it's it's a world government, a world religion that will worship him, that will bring him uh, sacrifices, that will be a time of peace, supposedly. Um, so it's in that sense that Jerusalem in the future will sit on many waters of people's nations and tongues if the Antichrist, in fact, does rule out of Jerusalem. Um, and that also will explain a ton more as we continue. The other part of that first uh, verse there that in, that, in that section is the great harlot. And in what sense is Jerusalem a harlot? Biblical harlots... Um, have an interesting characteristic. But let me just read some, some Old Testament passages for you to sort of get an idea. Um, Ezekiel 16, starting at verse 15, subtitled, Jerusalem's Harlotry. But you trusted in your own beauty, playing the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given to you, and made for yourselves male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them. You set my oil and my incense before them. Also my food, which I gave you, the, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you. You set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord's God, Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? that you have slain my children and, and offered them up to uh, to them by causing them to pass through the fire and all your abominations and acts of harlotry. You do not remember the days of your youth. Um, so Jerusalem here, spoke the city spoken of a, a harlot. Uh, and keep in mind, what is their harlotry? And, and they're com they caused the, the world to, to as we're going to see as we can pro progress in this, they caused the world to partake of their harlotry. What it's always going to be described as is their worshiping of the the false god. In this case, the false god of all gods, worshiping Satan himself as if he was the true god. And they um, ostensibly believe that this guy is the Messiah and champion him to a large degree. But it, as it says later on in, in Revelation 18, that, that, that this beast will turn on uh, her at the end and, and, and kill her devour her or i forget exactly the reference but but she starts out by championing him and and, and uh and so we will let's read some more passages about this let's go to hosea uh four the uh let's see chapter starting chapter four starting at 11 harlotry wine and new wine enslaved the heart my people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore the daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. And I will not punish your daughters when they commit har uh, harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with the harlots and offer sacrifices with the ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Uh, let's see here. Isaiah 
has got uh, some some choice words here too all over the place but uh talks about again jerusalem the subtitle the degenerate city how the faithful city has become a harlot it was full of justice righteous lodged in it but now murderers your silver has become dross your wine mixed with water so it's interesting notice that how the faithful city has become a harlot a biblical harlot the is is it, there's two other cities that are called harlots um in the bible one is nineveh and the other tyre and that we can infer that what what a, a biblical harlot has to have been at one time in a right relationship with god nineveh is called a harlot um after it's um after it once was had repented when when jonah and the whole you know the whale situation and everything went down they repented sackcloth and ashes the whole city i mean the king made the whole city repent and uh hundreds of years later they went back to their to their ways and it says here in uh in Nome 3 verse 4 because of the multitude of harlotries of the uh, of seductive harlot the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and famines through her sorceries uh families to, through their sorceries um they had become that also tire says of Tyre, uh, Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Now it has come to pass in that day, Tyre will be forgotten. Seventy years according to the day of one king, and the end of seven, uh, seventy years it will happen, Tyre, as the sons of the harlot. Uh, she'll be in seventy years. Da, da, da. Anyway, so Tyre is called this. Tyre is a little more difficult because um, because it's not necessarily they had a, it's not to say specifically they had a right relationship with God, but interestingly, the king of Tyre certainly did. Listen to this interesting thing from Second Chronicles: the Hiram, then Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in in writing, which he said, which he sent to Solomon. Solomon, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you a king over them. Hiram also said, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, for he has given King David a wise son, endowed with prudence and understanding." Who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal house uh, for himself? And I have uh, sent a skillful man endowed with understanding. And he goes on to describe, but basically, this idea of blessed be the Lord God of Israel is what the king of Tyre said, who has made the heaven and earth. He understands who he is and knew that David was a rightful king and everything, and 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 said blessed. So we get the idea that the king, and by the extension, Tyre had. So when Tyre is called a harlot, it uh, again has this idea, sort of going off on that particular point, not terribly important. But uh, let's continue down the line here and, and start talking about some of that stuff. With whom the kings of the earth commit fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Again, what is the, her fornication? It is a uh, it is a, a, an idolatry in the sense that they are worshiping as God, Satan. Now, it's interesting, later on in, in verse 18, it says this about, about her. And I sit... Um, she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. She's no widow. She's no widow because she has a husband, you know. Um, but, of course, that husband is, is a false husband. She has uh, a God, and that, of course, is her abomination. That is her harlotry. So she carried. So, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, was well, she sitting on the Antichrist? It, it describes that exact same thing um, over here when it says uh, in Revelation 13, 
then I stood in the sand of the sea, and I saw the beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his name, uh, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads uh, a blasphemous name, which is what it goes on to say here. Uh, so woman sitting uh, um, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having her head in a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead the name was written, um, uh, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Um, okay, so so also an interesting thing to note here is that it also speaks of this this beast that comes out of the sea with the seven heads and ten horns over there in revelation 13 it says of him that it was uh, it was given given him over every tribe tongue and nation so we know that he is the guy that is um ruling all this stuff she's riding the beast but uh but it, this is uh this is this is uh, what is a very description of what what's going on. Sitting on many waters. Uh, okay, so this is an interesting part. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. This is one that uh, really won't make sense unless you understand, uh, really, Daniel and Matthew 24. Uh, let's just turn to Matthew 24 real quick. The abomination of desolation. Now... Now, we're told to go look at Daniel for that. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, this is our Lord talking, spoken, spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let, let uh, them who is not in the field go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and nursing in those days. All, you know, for, it goes on here. You could say this is, Tribulation, man. This is get out of get out of town. Something happens here that is so bad. It says, "For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time known, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened." This time of persecution that begins here uh, is described earlier uh, when he says, "You know, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated for uh, uh, by all nations for my name's sake." is described also in Daniel, also surrounding the abomination of desolation, when it says, let's see here, they should take away the daily sacrifices and there there will be the abomination of desolation. So this is where Jesus told us to turn to. Then it says, okay, abomination of desolation. Next verse, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Um, I think that's what we're talking about here, but continuing. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by a sword flame by captivity plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with little help, but many shall join them by intrigue, and some of those with understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, to make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for appointed time. There are a million and one ways to demonstrate uh, that this abomination of desolation is a time of tremendous persecution. Let's let's go to one other reference here, Revelation 12. Um, so the dragon uh, gets uh, thrown to the earth here. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. That, keep in mind that, that idea of short time, We're gonna, that's going to come up in our verse. He has a, quote, short time. 
Now, when the dragon saw that he had uh, been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male, the male child. But the woman was given two wings of an eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to a place where she is nourished for a time, time, half a times uh, from the presence of the serpent. So it's interesting that this three and a half year mark shows up here. This is an indication that we're talking with the time, times, and half a time uh, without going into too much details, talking about the three and a half year mark. So we're told this is the abomination of desolation, the midpoint of that seven year uh, uh, period. And so the next thing there, verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and when he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what I want you to get, get here is that the biggest persecution that the world has ever known will spring from Judea. Matthew 24, remember, uh, that? in, in fact, that, that's a good thing to hit real quick, because most people say, oh, Matthew 24 is for the Jews, and the reason I know that is because he says, pray that your flight not be in the winter or the Sabbath. This whole section when he's like, flee, flee, it doesn't matter if you're in your house, just don't even go back to get your clothes. What are those that are pregnant, those that are nursing babies in those days? Pray that your flight not be in the winter or the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulations that has not been... Uh, these ideas of, of, of those who are in Judea, flee, flee to the mountains, are the reason this is there is because it's important to flee really fast whenever you see the abomination of desolation. Something happens with the epicenter of Jerusalem that causes that starts immediately this massive persecution of Christians. The idea of, of uh, the Sabbath is mentioned, not, not as some people suggest, oh, look, here people are under the Old Testament covenant. Jesus doesn't want you to flee if it's the Sabbath. Um, he's saying, pray that your flight uh, may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Your flight's happening in either way. Just pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Why? Because just like it being winter, or just like you nursing a baby, or just like uh, you being pregnant, it would slow you down, and you might be killed. Um, right now, in secular Israel right now, buses don't run on the Sabbath. Certain taxis don't run. Elevators operate in a totally different way on the Sabbath. Imagine if it's that way right now in secular Israel. Um, there's debate about the, whether or not the airport should be open on, on, on the Sabbath. Uh, if it's that way right now in secular Israel, imagine what it's like if the temple's rebuilt and they think the Messiah showed up. They're gonna, it's going to be hard to travel in Israel, but Jesus says it doesn't matter if you're pregnant. It doesn't matter what's going on. You know, Pray that nothing slows you down, but you've got to go. What I want to suggest here is that, that when, as Second Thessalonians 2 talks about him sitting in the temple and uh, you know, as God's claiming himself to be God and this whole thing that he does... So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Um, that uh, some people won't be that mad about it. Some people will think that's a good thing. And it may be that, that everybody sort of joins in in this uh, persecution at that point. And that's why it's such a immediate thing, is that everybody will sort of agree that there needs to be an eradication of, of those that believe in Jesus Christ at this point. But in any case, you can make an absolutely very, very strong case that the worst persecution that will, as clearly said, worse than ever will be, ever, its epicenter is Judea. That That's a really strong case for, for this idea that drunk with the, uh, the wine, of, uh, or rather, uh, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, uh, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and with and when I saw her, I marveled with great ama amazement. Another connection to that, if you if you want to make that connection, is of course what we just read about the two witnesses. Who uh, that that word there, martyrs, has the na the connotation of witnesses, and I know that uh, some translations view that very clearly as the two witnesses. 
which indeed were killed in Jerusalem. So there's a sort of a small tie-in there as well as I would suggest as I just did a very big tie-in there. Uh, okay, so the meaning of the woman of the beast, it says here is a subtitle in the New King James. It says, But the angel said to me, Why did you mar marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundations of the world, uh, when they see the beast that was and is not, yet is. Okay, so this beast uh, is the Antichrist. Um, it, we, we are told uh, earlier uh, there that uh, in, in the two witnesses verse, and they will finish their testimony, and the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street. We find other references to the beast from the sea. Uh, that it, it mentions here, very interestingly, uh, speaking of the Antichrist, who had seven heads, ten horns on his, uh, it says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, as a deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's, of course, three and a half years Again, starting at the midpoint of the abomination of desolation. Now, of course, a tie-in there is pretty significant. It, uh, it says that uh, it's not only from the bottomless pit, but all those who dwell on the earth, uh, whose names are not written in the book of life, what are they going to do? From the, They're going to see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Um, and I think that's a reference to his, as I just mentioned, one of his heads having a deadly wound, yet, yet surviving or... Uh, looking to be raised from the dead or perhaps even being raised from the dead and they're going to marvel at him. They are going to see that and they're going to be like, uh, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, now, here's the thing that trips a million commentators up. It says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, the King James and the new King James that I have here has another verse in verse 10 that says, there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Now, I pulled up my e-sword to look uh, really close at this Revelation 17.10. e-sword has a function where you can do compare that verse to other versions, as well as the Greek. And what you're going to find is very, very important, because it says the... Um, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, as you may know, a lot of commentators say, well, these seven mountains are the seven hills of Rome. This is talking about a city. This is the the biggest um, gotcha, the biggest thing that says, okay, this is Rome. Seven mountains. Rome sits on seven hills, famously. Now, there are big problems with this. As I'm, One, I'm going to show you here in the Greek. But one, let's just say, seven mountains they had a word for hills these these are mountains these are not you know rome isn't sitting on seven mountains it's sitting on seven hills is totally different words in the greek but nevertheless let's just let's just give that one what i want to point out to you is this most translations translate the next verse there are also seven kings the next verse there are also seven kings t h e r e most of them let's say um the ASV, ESV, they are also seven kings. Uh, the ASV says, and they are seven kings. Um, and the King James says, and there are 
also seven kings, or the New King James throws that also in. But the King James, for instance, says, and there are seven kings, five have fallen. Whereas the word there in the Greek is simply um, the word there. Uh, it's just used as there. It can be like there are, are there, there, you know. Um, but as, as most of these do render it, they are also seven kings. This is a clarification of what the seven mountains are. And that's, of course, consistent with biblical prophecy. These seven mountains are seven kings. And that, of course, makes terrific sense in context because it then goes on to talk unambiguously about seven kings. Here is a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads, um, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings... Uh, they uh, five have fallen. One is the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue for a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. Okay, so what I'm going to su suggest to you here is that these these kings, five of them have fallen. One of them at this time was, and then one is yet to come, and the one that is yet to come will be the seventh, but he's also going to rule twice. He's going to be the eighth, but he's also going to just be the seventh. He's the same guy, um, just sort of two rules. And I would suggest that just based on the context, what we just read there in verse 8, the beast who was and is not and will send out of the bottom of the piss and go to perdition, the one, they will all marvel at him who was and is not and yet is. So I think that's a, a clear talking about the Antichrist who will die, who seem to die, and then sort of have two rules. The spirit of Antichrist, we're told, uh, has been in the world for a while. John tells us about that, that the spirit of Antichrist goes around and has been working. I would suggest that it indwells kings from time to time, and I think you can make a very clear example biblically of five of these guys in biblical prophecy. Pharaoh. Anybody that's ever done a study on Pharaoh will see him as a picture-perfect example of an Antichrist. Also, Sennacherib. Uh, if you want to do a study on these guys to see what I mean, this isn't sort of like I'm picking bad guys in the Bible. This is like unambiguous cases of typology absolute of Antichrist. Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, this is very similar to the image of the beast. He, he puts up an image of the beast himself, declares everybody should worship him. If they don't worship him, he kills him, He kills everybody, you know, that kind of thing. We're talking about very clear examples. Um, Harmon and Antiochus Epiphanes, who I don't think anybody would, would disagree as well. Uh, he's described by Daniel so clearly, in fact, of his career that some believe that he was the only... Uh, fulfilling of, of the Antichrist, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes that Daniel describes. They say, well, that's just such a perfect description of him. But what they fail to recognize is that is that Christ says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, it certainly was prefigured by Antiochus. There's no doubt about that. But Christ says, hey, look, you know that was in the past. When you see the abomination of desolation, which means that there is yet another more real version of the Antichrist that, that, that's coming... Biblical prophecy is this, that there is types of Antichrist. When God speaks, truth happens. It's shockwaves of truth that just continue to flow. Uh, and it's fulfilled more literally uh, as it goes, all leading up to its, its literal fulfillment here in the book of Revelation. 
Um, yes, there were types of Antichrist. Yes, there were types of the image of the beast that, w- that people were told to worship. Yes, there were all these types of things, but they're not it. Christ makes sure that we don't think that. Um, anyway, so so we get the idea that these, these guys, five have fallen. Five of those guys at the time had fallen. The one that was at that time, speaking of John in his later years, um, was Nero. Nero is the guy that started the persecution of Christians that lasted for almost 300 years in Rome. Most of the early church believed that Nero was the Antichrist, and for good reason. Paul, the apostle, was killed by Nero. Uh, it, it, he appealed to Caesar. It was, it was, it, he, he very well probably got a chance to talk to Nero. I wonder what that was like. But nevertheless, he was killed uh, at the very beginning of Nero's reign of terror against the Christians. So, so what I would suggest is the five that have fallen have been those that I mentioned, Pharaoh, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Harmon, Antiochus, Epiphanes. The one that was was Nero, and the one that is yet to come is a future Antichrist that will rule from Jerusalem. He will have his head fatally wounded, and he will essentially rule twice. One, uh, his end of a rule, I believe it would be at the very last verse in Daniel 11, where he sets his palace in Jerusalem and will come to his end and no one will help him. And the next one is starting in the very next verse, the beginning of Daniel 12, when it speaks of the abomination of desolation. That is a totally new version of this, where this guy is very empowered by the beast who gives him his powers, described so many different places. Moving on. The ten horns, which you saw, are the ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, uh, but they receive authority for one hour as the kings with the beast. These are of one mind that they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. These ten kings who don't receive a kingdom, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. they got one thing that they're doing. They are made kings, and these kings give their authority directly away to the beast. What do they do? What is their purpose? Uh, they will make war with the lamb? Well, that's pretty insane, um, but that's what they do. Um, and, of course, we see there uh, in Revelation 19, uh, let's go with 19. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the sat on the horse and against his army. Uh, the beast was captured and with him the false property works signs and presence. So it doesn't work. It's not much of a battle. They get pretty much destroyed, to say the least. But that the it describes earlier where the beast and the false prophet um, gather together this army to go to war against the lamb, um, which is what these ten kings, I believe, are doing. This is this is, by the way, really a bad time for the Antichrist. But at this at this point, the seven trumpets have been poured out and the seven bulls are about to go down and they happen pretty quickly because it is so terrible what happens in those uh, and I think this is sort of going back in some of the bulls or actually this is sort of clarification on some of them uh, so that's what I believe the ten kings are then he said to me the waters you saw where the harlot sits of the people's multitudes nations and tongues all these are desolate um, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, they will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Okay, this is pretty pretty interesting, I think, because of this idea that um, um, they're going to turn on her. And I think that that's obviously very interesting because we see, of course, that that's exactly what, what happens with the seven-year 
peace agreement. Apparently, the Jewish people are going to believe that they have uh, uh, struck in a peace agreement. I think it's discussed very clearly here in Jeremiah uh, 6 in the Old Testament. Where it says everyone is given to covetousness, and from the uh, and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people. Uh, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, "Peace, peace," when there is no peace. Uh, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall, and at the time I will punish them, and they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. So it's talking. Um, about this impending destruction from the north at this point. Uh, Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, the land not inhabited. That's going to come up really significantly as we progress. Thus say the Lord of your host, thou should be thoroughly gleaned. So he's talking about them, uh, you know, they're going to heal their people, his people slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Uh, they weren't ashamed of their abomination. They didn't even blush. So, but it's going to turn on them. It's going to turn on them is what it's saying here. And that's, of course, what we see in Revelation 12, too. Uh, Satan Satan is really, really hates the woman it, and, um, and certainly turns on her. Although I think that woman there is just a little bit different. I think it's speaking of the particular remnant of faithful Judah, but nevertheless. Let's continue on. This is, you know, where I started doing a ton of, got, got really, really interested here. Um, let's see if I can skip over this, some of this stuff. Uh, so another angel, Babylon has fallen, fallen is a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine and the wrath of fornication. There, I think that's a pretty interesting idea. That if the Antichrist is in fact ruling from Jerusalem, you know, you probably could expect some demonic activity there. I'm not exactly sure what the fulfillment of that is, but I bet it's somewhere can be dug out in the Old Testament. This is me doing, I've basically done this research on one Saturday, so I pro, I've got a lot more to do here. But what I really dug into was this idea of the merchants of the earth. And uh, I may need to stop and, and review this because it's been a while, it seems like, since I've remembered all this, but um, even since Saturday. But let me read it. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of a torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys her merchandise anymore. Now it's about to list this list. One thing I should mention there, the, the idea of Babylon, when it, when it calls the name Mystery Babylon the Great, um, that is, uh, that's going to come up a little later. By the way... The the term the uh, as it says here, the woman who you saw is that great city. That word there in the Greek and in the English uh, is used in Revelation. You know, a good hermeneutic is that you just look in the book and then you check the and then you check the Bible for it. it is called here, and the dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. It, it, that same term is used here to describe, obviously, Jerusalem by the Lord is crucified situation. So anyway, this list of merchandise is what intrigued me for sure. And merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object, every uh, of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze and iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. 
Okay, so I'm looking at this list. I'm like, okay, cinnamon. That's weird. You know, this is a pretty prophetic passage. You know, what's the deal with cinnamon? I'm uh, uh, the thought that I had is that every name, place, and detail is there by supernatural origin and design. Thank you, Chuck Missler. And so I started doing a word study on all these things, and I came up with a ton of stuff. Um, to make a long story short, every one of these items has something to do with either the building of the items in the temple. Keep in mind, these are all imports. These are all things that the merchants are mad because they're not selling the stuff to them anymore because the city's been destroyed. They're either stuff that's absolutely needed for the temple in very precise things, like the cinnamon, incense, fragrant oil, and frankincense, uh, wine oil. When you do a word study of this, this exact same thing is that's being described is a particular um, oil that's described for anointing you need a lot of it, and you've got to anoint the high priest and all the Aaronic priesthood every day, and you can't do it in any other way, or you're forbidden to do it. You're cut off for your people, basically, is what it says. So, long story short, that, that that's the kind of stuff. Or, 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 the big or, these are things that were particularly um, needed for sacrifice um, to God, to the one true God. Um, and And there is one other... There's one other uh, category I've put on here, and that includes the horses and chariots and ivory. And these have a particular very, very, very interesting reference to Solomon at the end of his life when he was very, very, um, had fallen away from God in a major way. So let's look at some of this stuff. I'm going to just pull out some Old Testament passages here, and we're just going to read in no particular order some of the things that uh, I've dug up. Uh, offering for the sanctuary. Then the Lord said, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel who uh, uh, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly in his heart. You should take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen. Um, that, that, that phrase there is not used very often that in that exact same phrase, uh, but it's used here to speak of the offering. Uh, but that is also used as that same phrase here, let's see, when it's talking about making of the epod, and they should take gold, purple, blue, and scarlet thread and fine linen, and they should make an epod of gold, blue, purple, scarlet thread, and fine wool and linen, artistically worked. So it's an implement uh, of the temple there. Um, the holy anointing oil, now this is really interesting because they're very specific things besides the cinnamon. There were some things that I really had to do some some work to, to dig out, but the baseline here is in um, Exodus 30. Also take for yourselves quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. That, that word right there, sweet-smelling cane, is a particular word that corresponds. Um, and then it's an interesting line here towards the end. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever shall put any of it on an outsider... Okay, well, you think they're doing that if they're if they're in, they're putting obviously making this oil, the merchants are selling it to them, and they're obviously putting any of it on an outsider. Well, I said the Antichrist is an outsider shall be cut off from his people. The Bible is cool. Um, let's see, Exodus thirty-five, tabernacle offerings presented, and they came both. This is sort of recapping earlier, so it's not that great of a. They came both men and women. As many as had the, had a willing heart and brought 
uh, earrings and nose rings, rings of necklaces, jewelry of gold. That is every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord and every man whom was found blue and purple, scarlet thread, fine linen and, and goat's hair and red skins of rams and badger skins and brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver and bronze to the Lord's offering and everyone who with whom was found Achaia wood. You know, something uh, it just hit me as really interesting. I've got a lot of these to go through, but one of them I'm just going to go ahead and, and show you how interesting this is. This, this, I, uh, the first thing that it mentions, merchandise of gold, silver, and precious, gold, silver, gold and silver, precious stones. That phrase, exact phrase, is only found very, very, very few places. I mean, it, it mentions gold and silver and precious stones in a number of places, but the exact phrase is found in, I would say, an absolutely incredibly interesting place and if I can find it here all right um, okay here it is northern uh, so okay Daniel 11, starting at verse 38, speaking of the Antichrist, this is after he shall regard neither God of his fathers, nor the desire women, nor regard any God, for he will exalt himself above all of them. Next verse, but in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know, which is suggestive of him, uh, at least uh, ostensibly being a Jewish guy. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Okay, so this Antichrist plans on doing a bunch of offering to the god of, as it says here, uh, a god of fortresses. Some some versions say god of forces. And uh, I think you can infer what's going on there. But the interesting thing is that it's going to cost a lot of gold and, and, and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. It's the exact same phrase there in Revelation 18, which starts out, merchandise of gold, silver, and precious stones. Uh, in the Greek too, or actually it's, it had to go to the Septuagint to find a lot of this, because of course it's in Hebrew. Uh, okay, so silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, and, and this whole thing, um, citron wood, every kind of object of ivory. This, this citron wood uh, is a very interesting thing too, and that's eluding me exactly what it was. I think this was the one that was used in the pagan world. It was called the wood of sacrifices, but it was a incense type of thing, and it had a connection of some sort. And it is, it was one of the first ones I looked up, and I just totally—it's eluding me right now. Uh, every kind of object of ivory, every kind. Okay, this one's interesting, but let's connect the ivory here to. Um, the horses and chariots, uh, because that was one I was like, okay, horses and chariots, where, where are we going with, a, with that? And I found that when I was looking up ivory. This one, to me, was one of the least expected ones. Talking about King Solomon's great wealth, this is mentioned in two different chapters. Now, I would say to you here, Solomon is really messing up. Um, Solomon here is multiplying to himself gold. As many of you know, Sol Solomon multiplied to himself many, many wives. I can't remember what the number was, but we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wives. Uh, and he also, as we're going to see here, gathers, as it says in verse 26, and Solomon gathered chariots and horses uh, and, and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities. With the, He's got cities for all these for these horses and stuff. But let's, let's quickly read over here in um, 
in Deuteronomy, uh, if we can, which uh, I may not have marked. Uh, Deuteronomy, come on, Deuteronomy. I, I must have not marked it, but basically it says very specifically about kings that they don't need to be uh, uh, multiplying for themselves these three things. And it's like in a two-verse thing. It says don't multiply for yourself gold and silver, don't multiply to yourself wives, and don't multiply to yourself horses and chariots. And so Solomon is doing all that stuff. And by the way, the next chapter, after we get done reading what we're going to be reading here, starts out like this. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the, as the daughter of the Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites, from the nations from whom the Lord had said, uh, had, had said to the children of Israel, you should not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts away from their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, there's a number, uh, princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was, though, sin that Solomon was old, that his wife turned his heart to other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord God as his, heart, as his father David. So Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the god of the, go, uh, the goddess of the Sidonites, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place uh, for Cherimosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that in the east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives, and he burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned to the Lord of God, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning these things that he should not go after other gods. But he did uh, did not keep with the Lord had commanded. God showed up to Solomon and was like, "Dude, you've got to stop this." Um. Anyway. So let's read. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels in his house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had merchant ships at sea uh, with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years the merchant ships came, came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. I think that's peacocks in some translations. So, so King Solomon per, uh, uh, surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now, all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his presence, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen and had 1,400 uh, 400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom they stationed in the chariot cities of the king of Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedar trees as abundant as sycamores which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kev. The king's merchants brought them from Kev at, at the current price. Now a chariot was imported from Egypt. It cost 600 shekels of silver and the horse uh, and a horse 150. And thus through their agents they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So uh, all I want to say there is that there's more to know about that. In fact, I think in and it says very explicitly there in the Second Chronicles or is it First Chronicles place that uh, the number of uh, I don't think this is a necessary connection, so don't freak out or anything. But the number of gold brought to him every year by year was 666. But it doesn't it doesn't actually add up with the with the Revelation thing. I mean, it doesn't make sense with that. So I don't think I think it may be a coincidence, but. I, all I want to say is, is Solomon was a, a type of Christ. Don't, don't get me wrong. 
types if you if you know bible theology there's types all over the bible you know joshua was a type of christ and and you know moses was a type of christ we could you know most there's almost every book in the bible has a type of christ but and and as well i think in his later life it became a type of antichrist in the same way that um uh others did like we mentioned um i think there are types of antichrist without being a actual embodied antichrist the spirit of antichrist didn't indwell as we talked about um so anyway moving on here to some other references about this kind of stuff uh let's go to uh second chronicles here Offerings for the temple. Now for the house, my God, I have prepared with all my might gold for all things to be made of gold, silver, and things of bronze. Uh, for the things of bronze, iron, and for the things of iron, wood. Uh, wood for the things wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Marble slabs in abundance was the connection there for the offerings for building the temple. And we, of course, have the imports mentioned here of marble as well. And as, as we mentioned, fine flour was mentioned many different times in the in the context of offerings. Is also uh, other other kind of offerings and things. We have wheat, which is a grain offering. Cattle, which is obviously an offering, and sheep, which is an offering. So, and I don't know what to do with the bodies and souls of men. Uh, I do know that translations basically are speaking there which are the souls of men. I mean, they, they were trafficking in, in slavery of some type. Um, most translations will say something to the effect, and they were souls of men, not and the souls of men. So I don't know what to do. Now, I want to talk to you about the proof text against what I'm talking about. Um, I, I could go on about this, this theory, but um, most of you have already probably stopped listening here by this point. But I want to talk to you about the proof text that people would sh and should, would and should bring up. That is uh, this one. Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. Not be found anymore is not a problem when you look at what happens after the bowls get get thrown down. I mean, it's, it, there, there's a wonder there's any land standing after what is described when the six bowls get poured out. But this city, that city, if I'm right, should not be found anymore. Where the Antichrist ruled, shouldn't be found anymore. It should just be totally desolate. The problem with that is, people will say, that what about the millennial kingdom? Now, keep in mind that after this point, um, after Armageddon and the kings of the earth that gathered together against the return of the Lamb, once they're dealt with, then you're going to deal with uh, the millennial kingdom, when Christ is literally going to reign here on earth for a thousand years. Um, now, at the end of that thousand years, uh, I, I tend to think of it as a rest. I know it, theologically I don't think it works. That it's, it's a Sabbath, a, a rest of a thousand years. But if you think about it as a rest, there's still business to tend to. He basically chains Satan up for a thousand years. He doesn't really influence him. But at the end of the thousand years, it says in Revelation 20, that uh, Satan's going to be let out. Um, it says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are the, the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sands of the sea. So they're going to let Satan out at the end of the thousand years. His first order of their business is to go round up an army to go to war. So listen to who he goes to war with. Now remember, this is the the New Jerusalem happens after this. 
Okay, it says there we're going all the way to the next chapter, verse 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues uh, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife, and carry me away the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So, holy Jerusalem literally sent, descends out of heaven. We're getting a new, a new Jerusalem, literally, at the end of the thousand years. So, ostensibly... During the thousand-year reign, there isn't any new Jerusalem. So I just want to... But the idea here, as we read after what Satan does, is that Christ is somehow ruling from Jerusalem. And I'll tell you why. They say... They, why they think that. They say, they went up... Let me back up. And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath, uh, on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city... And fire came down from God of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. So they've been there for a thousand years. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then the great right throne judgment happens, which is totally after the millennium. So the, the key thing here is this idea, the camp of the saints, camp of the saints, an interesting thing, don't you think? Camp of the saints and beloved city. Now, I did a word search for beloved city. It's the only time it shows up. Nothing even remotely similar I can't dig up. It's, it doesn't call uh, Jerusalem the beloved city. It's sort of just there. Um, the retort I would say to this is the very last um, chapter in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, the very last words in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Okay, so it's talking about the gates of the city and its name. Everybody agrees it's talking about the, the kingdom city, if you will. And actually, starting from the previous chapter, uh, well, yeah, verse, chapter 47, starting about verse 13, it starts to talk about the borders of this land. The less, Thus says the Lord God, these are the borders which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joshua shall have two portions. Blah, 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 blah. It goes on talking about from the Great Sea, from the road to Helphon, as one goes to Sadad, Hamath. You know, it's talking specifics here about the borders of this thing. But at the end, it talks about the name. It says, all the way around should be 18,000 cubits. And the last words in, in the book of Ezekiel is this. And the name of the city from that day shall be called the Lord is there. Now that means uh, I don't I don't know how to pronounce it. It's like Yahweh Shem. I I don't know. It's something in Hebrew. But I, I did word searches on it, trying to figure out what the deal was with it. Um, now people obviously say things, but well, the Lord is there. That means the city is you know anywhere the Lord is, and and that's true and everything. But the problem is, is that it's talking about a physical location. And the problem with making this Jerusalem is that you can tell by, by the borders and everything that's talking about here that this is south of Jerusalem. Um, now, I haven't done very much study on this, and I don't, I don't know if it looks promising not w with what I'm seeing, but uh, I've seen one, one guy who um, you know, was just doing a commentary on this, was just sort of going through this, and he, he says it looks like uh, it may be Bethlehem. But at this point, remember, what's describing here in Ezekiel is the Dead Sea is going to be alive again. You know, after all this stuff, the Dead Sea is going to somehow get an outlet. It's going to spring up the entire, you know, there's a total desolate wilderness surrounding uh, the Dead Sea. It's just desert. 
in, in awfulness. Uh, but that is told here in Ezekiel. That's going to be all, all whole, totally new. There's going to be trees that are going to be like giving forth fruit that nobody even knew about anymore. You know, it's going to be doing stuff. It's like that kind of language here. We're talking about a totally different ball game in this thousand year period. Um, and I would suggest that the camp of the saints, the reason why it doesn't say specifically that this is Jerusalem and the reason why it says the beloved city is something I've yet to find out. But I don't think it's, it doesn't, it doesn't say Jerusalem. I mean, if for one reason, the new Jerusalem comes out of the sky, uh, you know, just a few verses later. So that suggests that something was wrong with the old Jerusalem, uh, I would suggest. So I think the one proof text actually opens up the door to something pretty darn interesting about, uh, about all that stuff. And I have uh, talked your ears off now, but I'm glad I did. And, um, you know, I, I, I want I think, I think it might do the next project about this because if it's right, it's unfortunate that nobody knows about it and, uh, something needs to be done about it. So I think I'm going to make a movie about it and I, I don't know, maybe I won't, maybe I won't. Let me know what you think. And, uh, you can contact me if you want to. My new movie on, uh, prophecy and everything is going to come out april 1st and 2nd so stay tuned on that subscribe to the youtube channel if you haven't already it's uh nowhere to run uh, 1984 on youtube k-n-o-w-w-h-e-r-e 1984 on youtube so subscribe there wait for it there and i'm also going to start a another channel that's just going to be resources for uh prophecy kind of stuff like i'm talking about so i, I don't want to turn into a prophecy person i don't want to be like an aberrant person who's like oh well Chris was great until he started going off in that prophecy stuff. And then he sort of, you know, doesn't really do anything good anymore and blah, blah, blah. So that's sort of what I'm wrestling with uh, about, you know, whether I should do this or not or whether I feel like I am supposed to do this or not. Because, you know, I wrestle with like, well, what good is it? You know, what good is it to know this? I mean, what can come out of it? Is, is any evangelism coming out of this or people coming to know the Lord because of this? Or, you know, I don't know. Anyway, uh, Pray for me about this. Pray for the conference upcoming in uh, Fort Wayne. And pray for my grandfather, who is not doing too well today. And uh, we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.